Well, good morning, OCC family and friends. I'm excited that you've chosen to join us this weekend for our weekly podcast. If you have a Bible with you this morning or this afternoon, whenever you might be listening, I want to encourage you to open up to the Old Testament book of Ruth, and specifically Ruth chapter 1. So if you start at the beginning of your Bible, you'll have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, and then you'll come to Ruth. Uh, Ruth is sandwiched right in between Judges and 1 Samuel. So Ruth chapter 1. I'm going to read through the entire first chapter, and then uh, we'll go through and unpack some of the truths that we heard this morning. Uh, Ruth chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled in Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and two sons with him. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife was Naomi. Their two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. And when they reached Moab, they settled there. Then Elimelech died, and Naomi was left with her two sons. The two sons married Moabite women. One married a woman named Orpah, and the other a woman named Ruth. But about ten years later, both Malon and Kilion died. This left Naomi alone without her two sons or her husband. Then Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had blessed his people in Judah by giving them good crops again. So Naomi and her daughters-in-law got ready to leave Moab to return to her homeland. With her two daughters-in-law, she set out from the place where she had been living, and they took the road that would lead them back to Judah. But on the way, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back to your mother's homes, and may the Lord reward you for your kindness to your husbands and to me. May the Lord bless you with the security of another marriage. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they all broke down and wept. No, they said. We want to go with you to your people. But Naomi replied, Why should you go on with me? Can I still give birth to other sons who could grow up to be your husbands? No, my daughters. Return to your parents' homes, for I am too old to marry again. And even if it were possible, and if I were to get married tonight and bear sons, then what? Would you wait for them to grow up and refuse to marry someone else? No, of course not, my daughters. Things are far more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. And again they wept together, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung tightly to Naomi. Look, Naomi said to her, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. You should do the same. But Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said nothing more. So the two of them continued on their journey. And when they came to Bethlehem, the entire town was excited by their arrival. Is it really Naomi? The women asked. Don't call me Naomi, she responded. Instead, call me Mara, for the Almighty has made life very bitter for me. I went away full, 
but the Lord has brought me home empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has caused me to suffer and the Almighty has sent such tragedy upon me? So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by her daughter-in-law Ruth, the young Moabite woman. They arrived in Bethlehem in the late spring at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now, church family, I'm excited today uh, to begin a new series on the Old Testament book of Ruth. Uh, Pastor and author Alistair Begg had this to say when commenting on the significance of this book. He said, the book of Ruth is arguably one of the loveliest stories ever written. It is literary and theological insight at its finest. I remember reading commentary on the book of Ruth for the very first time when I was in college. And in fact, I pulled my old, old Testament college textbook out this week. And this is what that book has to say about Ruth. It says, the book of Ruth is among one of the finest and best loved short stories in the Old Testament. Well, Ruth is a short Old Testament book that consists of four chapters. And as you read the book, it really does read like a play with four scenes. Originally written for the people of Israel before the time of Christ, God has faithfully preserved his words for all of his people throughout history. This book takes place during the time of the judges. This is an extremely dark time in Israel's history, a time when people lived to please themselves instead of living for the Lord. Ruth shows us how three people remain strong in character and remain faithful to God, even when the society around them was falling apart. But even more than the character and faithfulness of these three individuals, this book shows us how God can do extraordinary things through the lives of ordinary people like you and like me. You know, I think if the internet would have been around during this time, and the people had access to things like Twitter and Facebook, you would have seen a lot of posts about civil unrest, moral decay, and unchecked corruption. In fact, if you go back to the book of Judges, chapter 17, specifically verse 6, this is towards the end of the book, this is what we read. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. So this is that civil unrest, that moral decay, that unchecked corruption that I'm talking about. I wonder if this sounds familiar. The book of Ruth is extremely timely for Christians today. It's extremely timely for the church. As we witness civil unrest, moral decay, and unchecked corruption in our own society, the people of God are called to turn to the word of God for hope and for direction. Now, while all of these things were taking place in the time of the judges, um, Ruth gives us another side to the story. Throughout the book, we're reminded that even in the midst of our struggles, even in the midst of challenges and heartbreak, God is still at work, working all things together for his glory and for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So the three main figures in the book of Ruth include a Bethlehem farmer by the name of Boaz. Um, We haven't been introduced to him yet. There's a foreigner from Moab by the name of Ruth. And then a woman who'd been through one difficult season after another. First, leaving her home, then losing her husband and her two sons, and now having to face the consequences of poor family decisions. Her name is Naomi. And really, in chapter 1, the camera is focused on Naomi. 
In fact, her name is mentioned 14 times, 15 if you count the name Mara that she gave herself. So in Hebrew, the name Naomi means pleasant, and the name Mara means bitter. I'm actually going to circle back around to why this is important later on in the message. Now, while it's not the main theme of the book, I do want to highlight how Ruth reminds us that even in a world full of people, in a world today where there's you know 7.5 billion people plus, God still cares about the individual, regardless of your age or stage in life. See, Naomi was in the later years of her life. At this point, she had no husband, no children to carry on the family name, yet we're going to see how God uses her seemingly unimportant and ordinary life for his extraordinary purpose. Now, it's also worth saying that the God of the Bible is a God who defends widows and cares about their suffering and struggles. As we learn to be the people of God, to live in a way that God has called us to live, as a church, we should also care about widows. We should look for opportunities to meet their needs in the way that the Bible commands us to, specifically in the New Testament. Well, today, we're going to take a closer look at Ruth chapter 1 learning about how God worked in the lives of these ordinary people, as well as discovering some practical application for our own lives. As we read an Old Testament book like Ruth, we need to remember verses like 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, which says, All scripture is inspired by God, or is God-breathed, and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong. And teaches us to do what is right. I'd like for us to open with a word of prayer. And then we'll take a closer look at Ruth 1. Lord, wherever our listeners might be listening from today. I pray that we would not just be hearers of your word. But that we would be doers of your word. Historically, there's a lot of great things that we can learn about today especially how you were involved and how you moved and acted in the lives of these these ordinary human beings. But Lord, you remind us that all scripture is inspired by you. It's breathed out by you. It's useful to teach us what is true. It corrects us and teaches us to do what is right. Lord, help us to apply your word to our lives today, to live these truths out as we live our lives in a way that glorifies you and is for the good of others. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. In his book, The Conduct of Life, Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote these words. He said, the efforts that we make to escape from our destiny only serve to lead us into it. I think this quote rings true in our own lives and is echoed throughout God's word. You see, because God has given us freedom of choice, Um, We can ignore the will of God, we can argue with it, disobey it, and even fight against it. But in the end, God's perfect will will not be thwarted. This truth is clearly seen in the life and experiences of Elimelech and his wife, Naomi. In Ruth chapter 1, we see three mistakes that are made by this family. These are mistakes that I believe we should learn to avoid in our own lives and that we should learn from if we're going to deal with some of the storms of life that we experience in a way that glorifies God is for the good of others and helps us grow in our faith. So if you're taking notes today, 
The first mistake that we're going to talk about is this, the mistake of unbelief, and more specifically, trying to run from our problems. Now, this mistake is seen in the first five verses. I'm not going to reread that, but I would encourage you to do that on your own time. So I already mentioned how difficult life would have been living in the time of the judges. As a people, Israel was in an extremely low place, uh, turning away from God and trying to find joy and purpose in the things of this world. As a pastor, what I see in the church and what I see uh, around in the community, I'm afraid that far too many Christians today are looking to other people other institutions or things to provide security, joy, and purpose, only to be left feeling empty. Elimelech and Naomi, they were from Bethlehem. This is actually the birthplace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And ironically, it's a town with a name that literally means house of bread. So how interesting is it that a family who believed in the one true God would leave a place that they called home that was the house of bread, in search for food and work. Uh, Bethlehem was in the middle of a severe famine. So Elimelech did what most husbands and fathers would do. He moved his family so that he could provide for them. You know, on the outside, this seems like the right thing to do, right? Well, this family's decision teaches us some important truths about how to deal with the storms of life in our own lives. Um, When the storms of life come, and they will come, I think we can do one of three things. We can choose to endure it, we can try to escape it, or we can enlist it. What do I mean by that? Well, if we only endure our storms, then the storms become our master, and we have a tendency to become hard and bitter. Um, We try to just endure the difficulties in life. They really dictate where we go, who we talk to, how we live our lives, and ultimately, we do become hard and bitter. The second thing is trying to escape our storms. You know, if we only try to escape our storms, then we'll more than likely miss the purpose or purposes that God wants to fulfill in our lives. Another way to say this is that we'll miss out on the lessons that he wants to teach us. And I think far too many Christians and far too many people in general, that's what we resort to. We experience something difficult, and then we just try to run away from it. And we miss out on the lesson that God wants to teach us. But there's a third option, and that is this. um, Learning to enlist our storms. Uh, That just means that we wait on the Lord. It means that we're firmly rooted in Christ. That we learn the life lesson or lessons that God wants to teach us. And because of that, we grow in faith and in character. Uh, Learning to enlist our storms, this means that the storms of life, they don't control us. In a lot of ways, we control them. I want to show you how Elimelech and Naomi made the wrong decision when they decided to leave home, you know, trying to escape their storm. And I want to show you that there are lessons to be learned in the midst of the season that we're going through right now. Like many people who had gone before them, Elimelech and Naomi decided to take matters into their own hands instead of waiting on the Lord, instead of waiting for God to tell them what to do next. This is such an important truth, and that is this, that regardless of how difficult the situation or season may be, the safest place is always in the will of God. Let me say that again. Regardless of how difficult the situation or season may be, the safest place is always in the will of God. 
So instead of trying to run away from our storms, run away from our problems, the best thing to do is to walk by faith. So how can you walk by faith when things aren't going your way, when things are difficult? Well, you walk by faith by claiming the promises of God and by obeying the word of God. In spite of what you see, in spite of how you feel or what might be happening in your life. Walking by faith means committing yourself to God and relying wholly on him to meet the need. Now, I understand this is completely upside down from what the rest of the world teaches. But it's this upside down living that glorifies God. It's this upside down living that reflects Jesus to a world that is lost and builds God's character in your own life. We have to remember 2 Corinthians 5, verse 7, the Apostle Paul reminded God's church, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Christians are people of faith. Elimelech and Naomi, they thought they could outrun their problems by taking matters into their own hands. What's interesting to me is that the name Elimelech actually means, my God is king. But he left God completely out of the equation. He left him out of his decisions. He made a bad decision when he chose to move his family to Moab, which led to another bad decision when his two sons married women from Moab. Um, We know that this was forbidden in God's law. Uh, Malon married Ruth and Kilion married Orpah, uh, two Moabite women who at the time worshipped false gods. I think this is a great lesson on what it means to be unequally yoked. I want to talk to our individuals in the church right now who might be considering dating uh, or who might be dating. Now, if you're a Christian, um, the Bible tells us that it's God's will, it's God's plan, his design, that you would be equally yoked with another person. What does that mean? Well, let me take a step back for a moment. If you're in a dating relationship and you're a believer... And the person that you're with is not a believer. One of two things will always happen. Number one, you're going to be so focused on your relationship with Jesus, um, growing in faith, serving God, that it's actually going to harm your relationship with the other person because they are not pursuing the same things. Number two, as a Christian, you're going to be so focused on the relationship with the person that you're with that it's ultimately going to harm your relationship with the Lord. You see, God's plan, his design, is that two believers individually would put Jesus at the center of their life and then together at the center of their relationship. And as they pursue Jesus, as they draw closer to Jesus, they naturally draw closer to one another. This is called being equally yoked. I think their story reminds us about what it means to be unequally yoked. So what's my advice if you're dating right now and you're dating someone that is not a believer? I'm not addressing married couples with this because the Bible actually gives us specific instructions for married couples where one person's a believer and one is not. But what's my advice? Well, it's simple and it's twofold. The first thing is this. You need to immediately have the crucial conversation about faith. You need to see where the other person stands. Uh, Do they believe in God? Is God at the center of their lives? If the answer to that is yes, I think the relationship can move forward if that's what God wants. If the answer is no, I think you need to call it off. It's only going to end up harming 
your relationship with the Lord or tearing that relationship apart. See, Elimelech and his family, they also left Bethlehem to escape death. But the three men, Elimelech, Malon, and Kilion, they, they met death anyway. They only wanted to stay in Moab for a short time, but they ended up staying 10 years, a, an entire decade. And after a decade of disobedience, what remained were three lonely widows and three Jewish graves in a land they were never meant to be in. In fact, verse 21 tells us that Naomi went away full and she came home empty. This is a really sad consequence and result of the sin of unbelief. Their story reminds us that we can't run away from our problems. See, they tried to outrun the problems that were visible only on the outside, and they never properly dealt with the problems that were on the inside. Their unbelief and disobedient heart. I have a question for you today, and that is this. Are you trying to outrun your problems? Or will you choose to enlist them, standing firm on the promises of God and waiting on his timing and on his direction in your life? Please, don't make the mistake of unbelief and and trying to run from your problems. Trust in the Lord. Have faith in the Lord. The second mistake that I want to talk about this morning is this. That's the mistake of deception. And more specifically, trying to hide our mistakes. This mistake, uh, this truth, is found in verses 6 through 18. Again, I'm not going to reread that, but I would encourage you to read that on your own time. Now, to understand this mistake, we need to look at three testimonies that are seen uh, throughout these verses. The first is the testimony of Naomi. Verse 6 tells us that uh, Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had blessed his people in Judah by giving them good crops again. So God blessed his faithful people in Bethlehem, but not his disobedient daughter in Moab. That's so important to see here. See, Naomi heard the report of God's blessing while living in Moab. She heard that the famine had ended. And when she heard the good news, then and only then did she decide to go home. God's word tells us that that there's always bread enough to spare when you're living in God's will. We see that in Luke 15. I think it's really sad that Naomi had to only hear about God's blessing instead of experiencing it for herself. Naomi's testimony also reminds us that whenever we've disobeyed God and moved away from his will, it's important that we confess our sin and return to the place of God's blessing. But it's also important that that we return to the place of God's blessing for the right reasons. See, Naomi's decision to go home was right. right? She should go home. But many would argue that her motive was wrong. We don't see her confessing her sin to God. We don't see her asking for forgiveness at this point. One commentary writer said she was returning to her land, but not to her Lord. She also didn't want her daughters-in-law to go with her. If the right thing to do was to go home, if that's what was right for her, to a place where people worship the true and living God, then shouldn't it have been okay for Orpah and Ruth to go with her? But we see Naomi trying to influence them to go back to their families and to their false gods. When I read this story, I get the impression that Naomi didn't want to take Orpah and Ruth to Bethlehem with her because they were living proof that she and her husband had allowed their two sons to marry women from outside the people of God. In other words, Naomi was trying to cover up her disobedience. And if she returned to Bethlehem alone 
Without her daughters-in-law, nobody would know that her family had broken the law of Moses. But if they came with her, everybody would know. You see, when we try to cover up our sins, it's proof that we really haven't faced them and brought them to God honestly. Um, True repentance involves honest confession and a brokenness within. Instead of brokenness and then the healing that, that only God can provide, Naomi returned with bitterness. The second testimony is the testimony of Orpah. And this is found in verses 11 through 14. Orpah and Ruth were on the road with Naomi heading back to Bethlehem when they stopped and they were told to turn back. In fact, three different times, Naomi told Orpah and Ruth to go home. I think Orpah was the weaker of the two sisters-in-law. She started to make the trip to Bethlehem, but she couldn't finish the journey. It really seems like her heart just was not in it. And her decision shows us that her heart was really back home, where she hoped to get remarried and have a life of security. We see Orpah leaving the scene, and we never see her again in God's word. And then there's the testimony of Ruth. And we see this in verses 15 through 18. Um, Naomi was trying to cover up. Orpah had given up, but Ruth was prepared to stand up. She refused to listen to her mother-in-law's plea to go home or to follow her sister-in-law's bad example. And in fact, if you jump over to Ruth chapter 2, we're going to look at this next week, we learn that this is because she'd come to trust in the God of Israel. The words in my New Living Translation says, the God of Israel under whose wings you've come to take refuge. Um, Ruth loved her mother-in-law, and we're going to see that play out throughout this book. But even greater than that, she'd come to know and love the one true God. Ruth chapter 1, verse 16. I think it's the the most famous or well-known verse in this entire book. These are Ruth's famous words. But Ruth replied, Don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. So instead of deception and trying to hide her mistakes, Ruth had learned to trust in the grace and providence of God. She was heading into the unknown. She'd never been to Bethlehem before, but she trusted God's leading in her life. I think we can learn from these three testimonies today. Uh, Deception, trying to hide our mistakes. This is never God's plan for our lives. The third and final mistake that I want to talk about today is the mistake of bitterness. And more specifically, blaming God for our pain. Blaming God for our pain. We see this in verses 19 through 22. See, when Naomi and Ruth arrived in Bethlehem, the entire town was so excited to see them. But Naomi was not excited to be home. Verse 20 says, Don't call me Naomi. Instead, call me Mara, for the Almighty has made life very bitter for me. The townspeople, they were right in recognizing Naomi, but this was not the same Naomi they knew from a decade before. Naomi moved away pleasant, and she returned bitter. Her 10 years in Moab and the suffering and sorrows that she had experienced, these things had taken a toll on her life. But instead of learning from those challenges and allowing God to shape her character, she blamed God for everything that had happened. Her example reminds us that we can't control most of the circumstances in life, but we can control how we respond to them. 
And that's really what faith is all about, isn't it? Believing that God is working everything out for his glory and for our good, even when we don't feel it or see it happening. Naomi left Bethlehem with her husband and her two sons. That was their choice. Their family decided to take matters into their own hands. And now she was experiencing the consequences of her disobedience. Referring to this season in her life, Warren Wearsby said, she was a woman with empty hands, an empty home, and an empty heart. I think the question has to be asked, was Naomi really empty? Or was God still at work? She might have felt empty, but was that really the reality? Or was God still at work? It's important for us to remember that she still had her life, a gift that we often take for granted, God brought her home safely, and she had this incredible opportunity to start over as she was surrounded by friends who loved and cared about her. And she didn't know it yet, but God had brought Ruth into her life for a specific reason. And as we'll see throughout the rest of the story, God's hand of blessing was on Ruth, and he would accomplish great things through her life. I would say most of all, God still loved Naomi. They arrived in Bethlehem in the spring, a time of year when there's new life and and new beginnings. And Naomi was about to make a new beginning because with God, it's, it's never too late to start over. Friends, today we can learn from the mistakes that were made in the first chapter of Ruth, in the life of this family. But we can also be reminded that God is a God of new beginnings. Today we can trust that God is on the throne, that he has a plan and a purpose for our lives.